Hello out there. You are listening to Who Reads Poetry, the podcast where we read and discuss poems which hold a special significance for our guests. This is your host Neha. It has always been a pleasure for me to be introduced to new poems by people who love them. They make poetry nuanced, personal, and deeply interesting. For the very first episode, we have with us Cold Plums. As you may have guessed, Cold Plums is a pseudonym and the Twitter handle for our somewhat mysterious guest. I came across her in midst of the depressing news cycle that defines 2017. Her timeline is made of beautiful passages from all kinds of books and fragments of poetry, and I fell in love. Very moving. Check it out. In this episode, we talk about language as primary medium of seeing the world. Read an old Chinese poem from a very unlikely poet and dive down to the correspondence between Paul Celan and Ingeborg Bachmann. I really love this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, welcome, Cold Plums. That's your Twitter handle, right? Isn't it kind of wonderful that we met on Twitter and we're having this conversation right now? It's wonderful. Um, thank you for having me, um, Niha. And I'm just I'm so happy to be talking to you. And um, that's probably the best part about Twitter. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, for all the snark and uh, heat Twitter takes for um, you know being a place where all the skeptics unite and you we make jokes about things which are kind of terrible and try to get by, it also kind of puts us in a place where we are having this conversation where I feel this sense of uh, fascination and attachment with you, a person I have not met. Um, and I'm actually really happy that we made this all work because you're all the way in Taiwan right now. There's a 12-hour difference. This is a beautiful uh, uh, Saturday uh, summer evening in Brooklyn. And I saw two rainbows today. It's, 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 it's been just, just such a great day because this kind of came about after a month of us trying to get together to have this conversation. Yes. I'm really looking forward to this. So tell me what's happening around you right now. Right. Well, I'm I'm very apologetic um, because um, I've been on the road for the last several weeks and will be for several more and all through Asia. And um, most of the, that time was behind the Great Firewall in China. So that made our connection even more complicated. Actually, Twitter is blocked there. Um, wow. But yeah, and the, but I, 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 I leapt over the firewall. So um, and and Facebook and I guess Twitter, Facebook, um, all of Google. Um, oh so God. it's part of. Yeah. So so that's why it's been a little difficult, but I'm really glad that we get to talk. What's what's keeping you sprinting across Asia right now? Mostly work, um, working on a couple new book projects, um, giving lectures, I guess in my real life. Um, I, I teach, I write, um, I speak, I make films. And so summer is a good time to do all those things. So you're the whole package. Um, so, so, let's, so let's get right to it. Um, <clears throat> 2016 was just the worst. Okay. Yes. And yes. Um, I, <laughs> uh, end of the year, I went back to India. I made my whole little trip away from the, the politics of America, which is uh, my adopted homeland at the moment. And I come back a day after the inauguration and I'm just like so um, 
disappointed and I'm so um, kind of heartbroken in this very weird way as if everything was breaking around. It was just not the politics. It was something else as well. Um, and I, I couldn't quite pin down where all of this, like all of this emotional angst was coming from. But I, what I knew for sure was that I could always go to your timeline on Twitter and like find these beautiful verses and somehow that always picked me up. So you are kind of my coping mechanism for 2017. Uh, how are you coping with 2017? Well, well, that that is the kindest thing you could ever say. And I'm, I'm just really happy to hear that. Um, I guess in some ways, Twitter has been my coping mechanism um, in the sense that uh, it's it allows me to read or to make connections between reading, uh, between reading other people's snippets and my own, and use that to calm myself as a word, just like you, that uh, how am I coping? I'm not coping. <laughs> so I'm not coping. America is terrible. And I think from one immigrant to another, um, I think we briefly talked about this too, but yeah. it's, it's, it's personally devastating, right? That to think not only because all the sort of political um, reversal and upheaval that we're witnessing now, but also to personally feel incredibly unwelcome in a country that I've made my own for a long time, I think longer than you. But um, And so that was a, a real blow that, that felt, you know, very personal and very devastating. I, 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 com I completely agree. And... Um I'm curious now, um, whenever uh, I see something from you, it is almost all, all, always an exceptional piece of work. How do you manage to dig out these bits of poetry and like writing? And and let me just say this. And like, there is something very intriguing about just getting a snapshot of what I assume is a massive volume of text. And, <laughs> and that snapshot is just stunning and possibly the punchline to probably a very elaborate setup, but just getting that snapshot, just the gist um, of right. what, what could possibly be someone's life's work um, is so intriguing. It's almost always, it's almost always been moving. Um, I'm, uh, I'm trying to, and I don't, I don't know if you have it on your screen, but um, the, the Louis Ziegler, uh snippet that you have, uh, you had on today was just, immediately connected with me. Um, I, Louise Gluck is a, is a longtime favorite. Um, I'll get back to your earlier question. Um, yes, I do have many books and many, many books, but as you know, I'm, I'm traveling. And so part of it, I guess, is the many books in my head and the little fragments in my head. Um, but are you talking about, um, I think here I will leave you? Yes. I think here I will leave you. It's come to seem there is no perfect ending. Indeed, there are infinite endings, or perhaps once one begins, there are only endings. There is something so magical about those set of words, especially the last line, uh, once you begin, there can only be endings. It's just like, it's just so true. And nobody, uh, like, I don't know if uh, uh, beside the confines of poetry, like, uh, you, you hear these words very often, you know? It's, it's just... Right. They ring so beautifully in your ears. I think that's, um, I mean, that's why we go to poetry. You said that um, um, reading fragments of good words have been your coping mechanism for 2017. And I feel very much the same way. Um, I've always used it as a 
um, as solace, as balm, as um, throughout growing up, um, always something that I return to. Um, I'm very much a city child. I grew up, you know, in various cities, big mm-hmm. cities, metropolises, and uh, nature is not natural for me, if that makes sense. Um, But probably, yeah, nature is um, something learned, Mm -hmm. something, um, uh, something learned through literature, something learned through poetry, uh, filtered through um, thousands of years of classical Chinese poetry. And then later on, as I learned English and French and Italian and other languages, um, always seen through language. And so part of the fascination with language was that it gave me vistas that I didn't have in life. Um, later on, when I moved to the U.S. and, you know, had more access to nature, um, learned to love it on its own terms in some ways, but uh, always filtered through language, always snippets of poetry always come to my mind when I see something. And I think that's the way in which um, language and the world are inextricably tangled for me and the only way I can access it, which is true for many people, right? This is what language is for us. Um, But I think that in itself means that it's not decorative or ornamental or um, non-essential in my life or in our lives because it's something that it's the only way I understand life. That makes so much sense to me. And uh, coming from personal experience, um, just knowing a word for something that I never really had words for or having somebody express, uh, you know, a string of feelings that have always sort of been an entangled mass that I couldn't really like uh, unentangle myself, like to to, to see that expressed in language um it has been so cathartic and uh, this is really funny. So um, I, I was, um, I made a short trip to Amsterdam uh, recently and um, I just was, I, I, lo- uh, I love staring mm-hmm. at paintings. I don't know how much I get out of it, but I definitely just enjoy staring at them. Um, and what I, what I noticed very often is that um, I spend the exact amount of time staring at the painting and staring at the description of the painting. And some sometimes the, the beauty of something that I'm seeing is like completely enhanced by what I'm reading. And this is this was a very interesting discovery for me because I know <laughs> I've always loved words, but to, to, to know that it is my uh, primary medium, as you were talking about, of like seeing the world... Um, was was a revelation, definitely. It, it can be a burden, too. I mean, um, so I grew up studying classical poetry with my grandfather, mm-hmm. um, who insisted that I memorize something every day, um, all his grandchildren and his children. <laughs> and so it's a reservoir, right? It's, it's something, mm-hmm. but it's also a burden in the sense that when I did become um, more in tune with nature, um, I'm very undaoist in the sense that I can't um, I can't leave words behind. That um, in that sense, I'm more Confucianist than anything. But I can't leave words behind because they always frame my seeing. Um, and and you know, there's the there's not a Zen moment of forgetting words in order to see. But now I've made peace with it. But I think for a long time. I wondered what it meant to leave words behind because I'm also a visual person and I'm a photographer and filmmaker. And so it was as if um, I couldn't leave language behind, but now I embrace it. 
Um, and Twitter is a way that I've done that as well as a kind of a notebook, a scrapbook. I see. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to have a view into your scrapbook. Um, so let's talk, let's talk about the poem that uh, you are reading today. Um, so, so one of the reasons uh, we are we are doing this podcast is just to just to kind of explore this idea that uh, poetry is made meaningful by the person reading the poem and who has kept it close to their heart for some time now. Um, so, I'm I'm curious, when did you first encounter? Um, and if you could introduce the poem that we're going to talk about today, that would be great. Sure. Um, so um, to give everyone context, Nia asked me to choose one favorite poem, which is saying, <laughs> which is impossibility. I'm sorry to put you in that spot. <laughs> so, but um, I thought, well, maybe I should go ahead and just uh, embrace one of my earliest poems. So I, I don't know what favorite means, but certainly this is a poem that's been with me forever. And precisely because um, as a child, I would memorize poems. So I don't even know the first time I encountered it. Three, four, five. Um, That's early. As, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a classic poem. So the poem is by Xin Tiji, who is a 11th, 12th century, um, or really 10th century poet. Mm -hmm. um, he was uh, a scholar official and a general, and he was part of the Song Dynasty pushback against the the, the, the Jing, which is the Jerkins, mm -hmm. and they basically lost, right? Um, yeah. And then the Song became the Mongols. But um, in the sense that that was a... So he lived in a period of war, um, and he actually won some major military battles. And yeah. But then he was fell out of favor, especially with the... So I guess the Neville Chamberlains of that moment. And mm -hmm. um, so he was pretty much put into soft exile. So he was sent to faraway posts. This is a very common experience of scholar officials um, in the Chinese dynastic world. And um, a lot of them turn to poetry as solace. And um, so this is a poem that he wrote, um, presumably, uh, we don't have that much more biographical detail, but presumably it's a poem that he wrote while he was in exile. Um, I should also say a word about the form of the poem. It's yeah. called a ci, and ci literally means song lyric now. Mm -hmm. And what it is is that um, people wrote poetry, um, shi, um, as their primary or official form of expression. Mm -hmm. And ci was considered uh, a little bit casual and informal, so song lyrics. And so this is in the form of a ci. So that's that's important to know, too. So the language is very vernacular. The language is very casual. Okay. Um, so should I read it? Or? Yeah, yeah, please, please. I'll read it first in the original. Um, sure. 少年不是愁滋味,爱上层楼,爱上层楼,为复兴此强说愁,而今世尽愁滋味,欲说还修,欲说还修,却道天良好个秋。So in a rough translation that I did, um, in youth I knew nothing of the taste of sorrow, I liked to climb high towers, I liked to climb high towers to conjure up a bit of sorrow to make new verse. Now I know only too well the taste of sorrow. I begin to speak, yet pause. I begin to speak, yet pause. And say instead, my, what a lovely and cool autumn. 
that is amazing. When you shared this poem with me, um, I was like, this is exactly the kind of poem I see and I understand. Uh -huh. And I'm immediately moved by it. And then I reread and then I re-understand it and I'm moved by it again. It's just, oh, it's, 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 so it's, wonderful. it's simple in form. And I think, I think most people reading it would get something from it. Uh, right. What, what, what do you get out of this poem? Well, when you asked me um, to find a poem that has stayed with me and that its meaning has changed over time, um, I immediately thought of this poem not only because it has stayed with me, but because the poem itself thematizes what poetry is as it changes over time. Um, the poem itself is about what poems mean or what language does for us at different points of our life. And uh, as I mentioned, I may have first memorized this as a little teeny kid. And um, when I memorized it first, I probably had no concept of what it was. I just memorized it. And um, I was apparently fairly prodigious. So I could, you know, I would hold hundreds of poems in my head all the time just to show off and, you know, all those silly things. I, I'm trying and, to imagine you as a little kid <laughs> rattling poems in front oh God, of everyone. It must have been so tedious. I can't even imagine. <laughs> oh my God. That kind of party trick. And um, just, you know, the parent, I mean, I, you can just imagine the grown-ups in the room rolling their eyes. Right. But, um, so, but one of the things I do really love about the culture of classical Chinese poetry mm -hmm. and probably the culture of many classical poetry's um, traditions is that um, poetry isn't what poets write. Poetry is what we all read and what we all write. Yes. Um, it's just something that we do. And, yeah. and, I, and I think so there are many occasions for reciting poetry, you know, after dinner, drinking, watching, looking at the full moon, all these things that we used to do. Um, why don't so we that's do that you, anymore? <laughs> I know we can, can. You just said it's a beautiful evening in Brooklyn. Go ahead. Um, get together on a stoop and uh, read poems. And um, so this poem, I think I probably returned to it in high school or college when I was actively writing verse. Um, and Xingqiji is considered a model of tzu, so that if you were a good poem, if you wanted to write good verse, you probably would memorize or copy a lot of his poems. And so it's attractive because the poem itself is about what you have to do to write poems, right? So the first stanza, it's only, it's very short. It's a two stanza poem. The first stanza is all about um, thinking that poetry has to be about sadness. And so, but not having enough sadness as a young person. So having to conjure up sadness and, um, by looking out into vistas or going up into high towers and imagining oneself as solitary in order to write. Um, and, you know, I always, you know, as a clever young person, you think, oh, of course, I'm not like those other stupid, clever young people who have to do this. I am sorrowful. Um, but, you know, so I, I liked it then. And I think I've returned this to this poem um, the last few years when it's gained, it has new valence for me, right? Um, as a not so young person anymore, I think that's exactly it, that um, so much of life is in the unsaid. Yes. 
Um, I, I I don't know. It may be interesting to 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 see what you feel about my interpretation of it. My first takeaway sure. was my 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 first takeaway, uh, and this is a this is a very uh, short Im- impactful poem. But immediately I felt like I understood it, and it was total fallacy, most likely. But let's <laughs> um, let's let's talk about please, this. Please. To me, it felt like. <clears throat> I, I think well there is there's always that cultural um uh kind of glory placed on uh sadness like if you are yes. sad there is something um of value about it um I'm I'm not so sure of of that whole paradigm to be honest um but what it felt like when I was reading the poem was something like as a young person you you want to you want to um, have reasons to have sorrow and you're looking for sorrow so you can make beautiful words out of it and then when you get older you realize that there is just plenty of sorrow you didn't have to go looking for it anywhere and that it is everywhere and what is an important function of poetry or just words or just living is to um kind of find what's beautiful about living in that moment right now which I think is a is it's almost like a, a lyrical tribute to growing up in a way, and uh, I don't know that that those were my feelings. I guess I'm really fond of growing up. <laughs> that's wonderful. I mean, that's a wonderful way of reading it, and um, and and actually gives me new insight because I've always thought of the last line as a as a kind of deferral, right? Saying. You want to speak, but then you just say something commonplace, like uh, "What a cool and lovely autumn." But I like your interpretation that it's actually about being present. It's about being in this moment, saying "What a cool and lovely autumn it is right now," and and that's lovely. I've never really thought of it that way. I I somehow feel and 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 this is something that that comes to me time and again is that um, we we glorify uh, sadness. And we forget about happiness even when it's in front of us. And like how much hard work it is to is to capture happiness is just, you know, like there are very few happy poems and like very few happy songs uh, like that stay with us. I think mostly it is the melancholy that we sort of like end up desiring in a in a weird way. Anyway, uh. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I think also. But to return to your um earlier premise of um, Hawaii poetry or what does one do in, in dark days? Um, yeah. uh, one of my favorite poets is Derek Walcott. You may have seen me mm-hmm. um, post about him. Um, he was a, briefly a former teacher and he, you know, is an island boy as I'm an island girl. And so <laughs> obsessed with the sea, obsessed with the sea. And I, okay. I love people who are obsessed with the sea um, because I grew up around the ocean as well. And, um, and I think at some point he said something like poetry is an island. And I think I, I, I love that. I love that notion that um, poetry is what you swim toward, you know, swim towards. I think Salon says something similar to that. You, this is something that you try to, it's a it's a buoy. It's a it's it's a way of not drowning, and um, certainly that emotion lends itself uh, more easily to expressing sorrow than happiness. And perhaps I see. when we're happy, we're not drowning. We don't imagine that we're drowning, <laughs> and so we're not swimming towards that island that is poetry. And so maybe that's it. 
then should we be celebrating the death of poetry? Because when there is no poetry, it means we probably don't want to run away from situations that we are in. <laughs> I know, I know. That's that. I mean, one would hate to think that, but um, yes. I think that. I think that. Um, uh, but one could say that it's 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 the action of it, right? It's it's the. Um, kind of like what I'm doing in my writing that, um, you do a lot of reading and research and you write from a place of incredibly intense research and mm -hmm. reading, but it's, it's all to reach a place of simplicity. And I think poetry teaches us that simplicity, um, because what you're trying to get at is really just a mood or a thought or a tone, but it comes from a place of much reading and, you know, and much writing, but you want, but it comes out as the, the utmost in simplicity. Um, and so, so I think, you know, that, that action teaches us also about how to process our own emotions in dark days. Yes. And this is something I have noticed in, in Chinese poetry is that the, the words are so simple yet so striking, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's as if, um, I think somebody took a very complex landscape of emotions, you know, um, a man mm -hmm. in exile, a man who was, you know, fighting wars and had this had, had this idea of like his dynasty growing and getting its rightful place back and, and not being able to do that. Um, and like all all the unprocessed emotions. Uh, but then when they when they take to paper, they are these like very simple, lyrical and, as you said, colloquial words. Which, which makes sense to me as a person who has never fought a war, doesn't want to, um, <laughs> uh, is, is sitting in, in quiet comfort of a house. Um, yeah. Is it a cultural thing? Do you, do you, see, do you see something similar? Or am I reading too um, much into it? No, I don't think so. I think um, uh, there's certainly very complex and elusive poetry in the tradition. But I think uh, in Japanese and Chinese and a lot of, and, or if you look at early Greek poetry, or there's this sense that it's a kind of distillation, right? That so you don't want to, you don't want to obfuscate emotion with language that distances you from that thought, that mood, that tone, that emotion. And so... Um, you want to thrill in the language without hiding in the language. And I think um, I think Chinese poetry really aspires to that, like the best of the tradition really aspires to that kind of simplicity. But um, the other thing I should say is that maybe it's a difference in reading tradition. Um, uh, most traditional poetry given was not read outside of context. So we do know some biographical detail. We do know when it was written. Um, often they have prefaces. Often they are responses to other people's poems. I suddenly remembered um, probably when I returned to verse again, I had this, I've dated uh, my share of poets and musicians in my life, I guess. But um, <laughs> uh, one one poet I dated a long time ago was um, was very was um, embarrassingly probably the, the only serious Chinese boyfriend I've had. And um, we wrote poems to each other. And, um, and that's, that's, a, that's actually a very big part of the tradition is writing poems to friends and re responding to their poems, um, including their lines in your poem. And so I think there's also that, that poetry is about a call and response. 
And so therefore you can't be so trapped in your own language that is hermetic and the other person can't enter it, right? This is this is something um, that I'm just learning from you right now. Um, I never thought of poetry as being about common response. I almost feels mm. like I, I almost sometimes feel like poets poets want to keep the commoners away from their pieces of poetry <laughs> by making it inaccessible. Uh, that's just me ranting at the moment. Um, uh, completely off topic, but are are poets good good dates? Are poets good dates? God, no. <laughs> God, I, no. I, I, I suspected the same, but I just wanted to I confirm. Know, I know. Well, it depends, depends. I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> and um, I've dated a lot of classical musicians too. So I think I would prefer musicians to poets, if that makes sense. But um, I, I, I want to point out something that you said earlier. Um, so you said, I actually said call and response. Um but you heard common response, which actually yes. is great. I love that. I love that. <laughs> um, and I think it makes perfect sense. And um, so it's both. It's call and response in the sense of um, you're always answering someone else's call. But um, so it's like a phone call and it's like a conversation. Um, and so I don't like hermetically sealed poetry where no one can enter it. But it's also common response, meaning um, something that we share in common, a sense we have in common, not to be too Kantian. But um, so I think that's lovely, too. That's interesting. Um, let's talk about our uh, our poet. Um, he's a military leader in exile. And like, honestly, I wouldn't peg him to be a poet. You know, like you, you think of right. you think of a person who is fighting wars to uh I don't know, to be focused on efficiency and some kind of a logical detailing of the universe around them. But then also, mm-hmm. he's also a, a man who's fighting wars for a, a state that he believes in and very close to life and death. So I don't know, I guess I could go either way. Um, but, you know, for me, he's an unlikely poet. Uh, I, I, I don't know what you think of the poet himself. Do you, is he an unlikely poet to you or like a usual suspect? I guess, I guess for me, it's more of a usual suspect in the sense that they are all scholar officials because um, it's our shared training. And so for literate or elite Chinese, they all wrote poetry. And so um, it becomes their conduit to emotion. So there's not a kind of separation of um, so, so there might be a separation of literacy and illiteracy, um, but of course there's folk tradition and oral traditions. But I think in terms of literacy, it meant someone who could write poetry. And so therefore, wow. um, anybody who, who was literate could write. This is... But yes, he, to, be, to be such a good poet, yes, it's probably <laughs> a little bit, yeah, um, is, is, is probably unique. This is very interesting. I, I did not know about uh, defining literacy um, as someone who can write poems. Uh, mm-hmm. It would feel like a very high bar right now. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad uh, there were people at some point in time for which the bar existed and then they, they clearly excelled at it. Um, Good. <laughs> okay, so so let's talk about uh, our other other topic that uh, that you I can clearly see from your timeline that you're obsessed about <laughs> Paul Celan and uh, and Bachman. Um, what, what what is so uh, magnetic about your life to you? And and 
just feel free to bring in the context. Uh, so, you know, someone who hasn't doesn't have a Twitter timeline open right now can actually understand our conversation. Right. Um, so what you're referring to is the fact that I've been sort of torturing everybody who follows me with <laughs> constant repostings of um, <laughs> Paul Salon and Ingeborg Bachmann, um, two German language poets, uh, um, and their love story in some ways, um, even though it's much more than that. Um, so Salon is uh, a Romanian Jewish uh, Austrian poet, and Ingeborg Bachmann was... Austrian and actually daughter of um, a father who had served in the Austrian SS, as it were. And but they met as poets do, I guess, at some sort of gathering um, in the late 1940s. Um, Salon still very much in the trauma of the concentration camp, and his family all perished there except for him. And um, but he was already becoming making a name for himself as a poet. Um, I'm fascinated by poets who are in some ways alienated from their own language. Um, so what does it mean to be someone whose whole family and whose whole culture was destroyed by the Nazis um, writing it, in German, yes. right? Writing in German. Yes. yes. And, and that, that, that intensity of alienation from this language, but yet this is the language of your that, that you are given to write um, because it's the language that you read literature in. Um, you might imagine this has a lot of meaning for me because we're speaking English now and yes. we both <laughs> established that English is not either of our native languages. And so what does it mean that we have to talk about things in English? And yet it's also a, a possibility. It's a way for us to talk and talk to get each other, right? And yeah. so I think... Um, I'm definitely drawn to um, people who don't write in their native tongues for that reason, and especially native tongues that may be from colonial masters or from oppressors. And so I've always loved Paul Salon for that reason. And Bachman is a poet that I've always known, always liked. Um, and in a reversal from our discussion about Xinjiji uh, and my own translation, uh, one one thing that I do, I guess I do a lot in my life is I, I am a professional translator at various points. And um, so translation is a, a, a topic of fascination for me. And so um, the fact that I know them through the opacity of language is interesting to me, too, because my German is really rudimentary. And so I rely on wonderful translators who have translated them. And and so so part of it is that fascination of distance there, too, for me and them, is that I'm reading them also through a kind of haze of language. I see. Uh, going back to our language, uh, going back to the, the, the poem, um, Mm-hmm. The the translated version um, that 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 you uh, recited, uh, did you did you feel like there there was something lost in translation when you were reciting it in English? Oh God, I'm sure everything is lost in translation. Oh. <laughs> but um, I think brevity is always lost. Um, I think classical Chinese has as its advantage incredible brevity and. Um, to use a language that is has declensions or has has grammar, you know, grammatically complex, mm-hmm. you know, you have to use subjects. For example, like I, mm-hmm. you, um, it means that 
uh, you're inserting a lot of stuff into the poem and that's, that's always the problem. But I, 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 I like to celebrate, you know, what can be translated rather than always just saying, oh, poetry is what can't be translated. But um, there definitely there were things that I struggled with in that poem. Um, yeah. Um, well, um, I'm, to be honest, if it wasn't translated, it would be very hard for me to understand it. So I, I'm glad yes. <laughs> I'm glad for all the translations that exist. Um, going back to Salon for, uh, for right. a bit, uh, his mother spoke German. And he was right. incredibly attracted to Bachmann, whose father was was part of the the whole system that caused the death of his parents and so much turmoil. Right. And like, do you think at some point in time they talked about this? I think so. I think so. I think that um, you know, I um, I've been sort of obsessively reading their correspondence because, as I said earlier, that part of the habit of reading poetry in Chinese or Japanese is really knowing the context of the poetry and yeah. uh, and the call and response. And to look at their poems, um, not as individual poets, but as a kind of conversation they've had throughout their lifetime mm-hmm. and um, with lots of encoded and quiet things that were really only meant for each other. Um, it's very voyeuristic, of course, but um, <laughs> but yet it's also really fascinating to see the way in which they were specifically writing to one another or, you know, in other cases to other friends, but and not just kind of existing in a vacuum. And the line that really drew me, and it's part of actually a letter, not a poem, that Solange wrote to Ingemore Bachmann that, um, uh, maybe I'll, if you don't mind, I'll just read it. Um, I would love that. So it's, it's, uh, so they started, they met in 1948. He was, I think, seven years older than her. She was very young and, um, he started just, uh, pursuing her, but then he was about to move to Paris in a month. And so they had this kind of whirlwind romance. Then he went off to Paris and then they started their correspondence. Um, a few, but there was obviously a lot of misunderstanding because I feel like every letter begins with, I'm sorry, I haven't written or why haven't you written? And, um, this is, I I also love the romance and the frustration of pre-internet, right. Which is really (laughs) my, my, my youthful, um, relationship to romance, um, <laughs> which is hundreds and hundreds of letters written and not knowing your letter has someone, right? and not knowing whether the silence is deliberate or if somebody's letter just got lost in transit. And um, so, so a lot of the texture of their correspondence in their poetry is about this kind of misconnection. Um, but also they rediscover each other, I think a decade later, uh, maybe something as banal as a conference together. And obviously something starts up again and they become, you know, infatuated. But Salon by this point is already married and has this incredibly supportive wife um, who is emotionally supportive, but also financially supportive, this French artist, Giselle Lestrange. And, um, and has a child. And so Bachman is quite resistant to continuing their relationship. And so he writes this letter, which is probably the most famous letter in the correspondences, but he says, returning to what was passed over, 
I don't know what all this means. I do not know what I should call it. Destiny, perhaps. Fate and calling. Searching for names is pointless. I know that is how it is forever. It is the same for me as for you, being allowed to speak and write down your name without struggling with the shudder that comes over me. For me, in spite of everything, that is joy. You also know when I met you, you were both for me, the sensual and the spiritual. The two can never separate, Ingeborg. Think of in Egyptian. Um, every time I read it, I see you step into this poem. So this is a poem that he wrote for her yeah. on her birthday 10 years earlier. Um, you are the reason for living, not least because you are and will remain the justification for my speaking. But that alone, my speaking, is not even the point. I wanted to be silent with you, too. And I love that. I, I love that. Um, I think the famous line is, of course, the incredibly romantic line, you are the reason for living um, and will remain the justification for my speaking. But the line I love is really, um, but that alone, my speaking is not even the point. I wanted to be silent with you too. That's, that's, that, that's my favorite yes, line too. I yes, just want to yes, say yes. it because every good relationship well, right. I think if you cannot be silent together, I feel silence is almost yes. like a spiritual experience as yes. as two people who love each other. I think I yes. think if you get silent right, you get a lot of other things right by default. Yes, absolutely. I think I think you know in some ways the the ultimate the height of romance is imagining being silent, uh, reading next to one another, right? Um, reading next oh, to yes. a person and so much. being content content in that silence. And and I think. Um, this line is especially poignant coming from them because they, in fact, endured incredible periods of silence. And I think that silence is a is 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 a thematic in both their poetry. And I think it's back to your earlier question about whether they talked about that experience. Um, they both talk about the difficulty of writing in a language that has oppressed them. Uh, Bachman as a woman, as someone who shares in the collective guilt of the Holocaust, um, mm -hmm. Uh, Salon as a survivor, as someone writing in the language of the presser. I think both of them really struggle, really struggle with this idea of language. And it comes out in their poetry in, in beautiful ways. And so that, that silence is what I love about them. Um, and so why I become obsessed with them. What is also interesting to me is that their romance is, is the kind of romance that uh, I think uh, the the current culture exalts, you know, like a whirlwind. We are writing poetry to each mm. other, a kind of romance. And maybe that's what actually romance is, uh, you know. Um, but I, some, I, um, I felt afraid of calling it a relationship. To me, it's just, just, just a romance. I don't know how you right. see this relation. It is a relationship, but not, not a relationship in the romantic context to me i wonder how you see it as somebody who is so so uh, interested in it i i agree with you i think it's a relationship um uh, certainly and an important relationship uh, incredibly productive relationship um i see um you, you you see i think i deliberately chose um echoes, right? When they echo each other in their poetry and when they inspire one another in their poetry and they drop phrases that um, mean something to the other person. And so I think obviously this lifelong relationship is generative for both of them, right? That they, they yes. use it as a source of inspiration. Um, but if romance, uh, I think 
what you're asking, I, I'm hearing is saying, but romance is the day to day and the supportive and and no, probably they weren't that to one another. Um, I think Bachman was very supportive of Salon's career in a way that he wasn't of hers. Um, he was a little <laughs> bit self-centered, um, but she was his cha- very typical, actually. But she was very cha- she was his champion, right? She was always looking for publication for him, venues for him. I mean, they were both well known, but he, by all accounts, and you know who can blame him, was always felt very paranoid and persecuted and um, was often falsely accused of all sorts of things. There was a huge plagiarism case that turned out to be false. Um, There were people who were writing anti-Semitic things about him. And so I think she was his lifelong champion in public. And that was very important because she was a prominent poet herself. Um, But I think that in terms of the day-to-day, who knows? You know, I mean, that maybe they... They seem to have lived together for a brief moment in, yes. the tw- in their tw- in, in right? Paris and, for a month yes. or so, and it did not end well, as as right, honestly right. I suspected. But yeah, right, right. So, so yeah. I mean, back to your earlier point: is a good to date a poet? Probably not. And uh, <laughs> um, so, um, so I think the best of each other was probably their language and that they shared. Uh, one of the things that um, sort of like I, I think about when I think about uh, why you're so interested in this relationship is um, is it is it is it the kind of relationship that um, you've had and is that why your personal interest in this comes from or is this a very academic interest in life sort of two human beings that you individually admire. <laughs> I feel like we're suddenly taking a turn towards the, <laughs> the excitement, the, the, the salaciously personal. Um, feel free to completely avoid the question. Uh, I think, I think I've had this kind of relationship, and I think I've. Um, it resonates with me, right? It, uh, as someone who also plays with language, um, it resonates with me. Um, I also think it resonates with me the impossibility of reconciling this kind of intensity with a shared day-to-day existence. And I think, so I I also um, am attracted to that. Um, But I think the the thing that really draws me is the call and response. I mean, I think that um, the fact that the poppies in memory, for example, you know, a line that they keep on echoing or the silence or the roses, um, you know, phrases that they return to over and over again, that they embrace and that they share and they choose a sort of chew over and taste and share with one another. Um, that to me is impossibly romantic. I mean, I think, um, and, uh, uh, pretty much what poetry is, right? It's a language, a code that some people understand and other people don't. And what you're looking for are people who share the tone, who who can truly understand you. And um, so I think that that definitely has a, um, a sense of romance. I mean, it ends really tragically too. And I think, you know, we talked about earlier, but we're attracted to sorrow. Um, they both have such bad ends, right? They yes. both, um, oh. so, so I know. And 
um, but sad ends that they seem to anticipate in their own writing. Um, Salon drowns after so much writing about swimming towards islands of poems or swimming towards um, anchors, and he drowns himself in the Seine. Um, Bachman so writes about being consumed by fire, right? She quotes that great Flaubert line of, you know, um, with my burning hand, I write a fire. And to think that she accidentally um, uh, burns herself to death, you know, a, a lit cigarette falling asleep, um, whether it was a suicide or not, no one knows. But both of them seem to anticipate these horrible ends. And, you know, the, the romantic in me can't help but think, is it because they found each other but were never together, right? So I don't know. Yeah. Um, this is, it is definitely, uh, I, I think the relationship is definitely a lot of unresolved emotions, even though they talk to each other so much, so much between them seems unresolved. Um, right. Uh, they live together, that doesn't go well, but they are, don't really have a chance to do, do it over, you know. And, and they are supportive of each other and they have this very uh, stunning uh, intellectual uh, partnership. But at, at, at some level, I feel like was Bachman aware of uh, the fact that he was a bit self-absorbed and so on and so forth. Like there's so much, so much emotional granularity when it comes to relationships between two people. It's almost like right. between two people, there exists a world all by itself that right. no, no third person can truly comprehend. Um, it, I don't know. It makes me thing, ha happy yeah. and sad at the same time. But yeah, and and, and the the funny thing is, um, um, Bachman is the one who tells him not to leave his wife um, when they re-encounter each other in the late fifties. And Giselle actually emerges as kind of the heroine of the story because she, um, as Salon falls into his depression, um, she starts a correspondence with Bachman, fully knowing that um, Bachman is in some way Salon's, the love of Salon's life. And um, she's the one who informs Bachman of his death. And yes. uh, I, I, they, I actually read that letter. Yeah. And yes, I, yes. I had immense respect for her almost immediately. Like, right, right. I felt like between, in, in this whole nexus, she was a person I felt close to. Yes, yes. And um, in a late letter that Bachman never sent Salon, um, probably thinking that he would never, he would just fly into rage. But um, she actually mentions Giselle. She says that um, she basically lives her life to accommodate you, but you would never do the same for her. Um, and so it's interesting that in towards the end that Bachman develops this kind of sympathy with the wife, as it were, right? And um, that they, in fact, I think Giselle is the one who saved a lot of the letters, the, the correspondence, and how painful that must be, but yet also... Um, that's why we have them. Um, that's why we have Salon's letters. And so it's, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting to think about the complexities there. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I can't, uh, imagine, um, the emotional spectrum of all of these people involved. Um, I feel like they must, <laughs> they must vary a lot. Um, but it's very fascinating and I can totally see why you're so hooked up. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I think I think that um, uh, it's it's also part of a new project I'm working on, which um, I'm not going to speak about because I I only speak about them when I'm done. But um, but it's a project I'm working on, and I really and and it's been very inspiring to, to me. I also like that. Um, Anselm Kiefer, the great artist, yeah. has you know very much interjected himself as also another interlocutor, right? If Giselle was this painful witness to this romance, um, there are many people who've come after, right? Like 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 Kiefer, uh, who've um, chosen to depict this. To, to embrace this silence in their poetry by finding it in other media. So he's definitely done these beautiful paintings, right, for Salon, for Bachman, um, that really try to use the visual language to draw out um, the subtext of those silences. And I, so, you know, it's really wonderful how art inspires more art. And so that's something I've always loved. That is wonderful as well. Um, I, It's like... It's 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 definitely something um, that sort of uh, feeds onto each other and like within within yourself as well. Like as an individual creating art, um, I feel like if you have done one thing, it makes it easier to do the next thing. And I can only imagine what it means to be a group of people, kind of you know, uh, getting energy from each other and 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 doing right. this. Um, one of the things that I, I, I have this very distinct feeling of uh, missing out. Everybody has uh, FOMO. Well, everybody of, feels that way. <laughs> yeah, everybody has FOMO of one kind or uh, of one kind of other. But um, I, I don't know if I'm unique in feeling FOMO about reading um, um, Einstein's uh, biography by Walter Isaacson, where all the scientists are writing to right, each other. Right. They are talking right. about their experiments. They are talking about um, they are they're talking about their very personal griefs. As well, you have uh, people uh, mediating, uh, um, you know, separation of relationships over letters and like mostly there's so much meaningful conversation happening in words. And uh, while <laughs> while it is true that it still happens, uh, somehow I felt like I didn't have that. I didn't have like I wasn't discussing um the 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 thing that would get me the Nobel prize over a letter like Einstein was with his friends and like how interconnected all these people doing great work in physics and quantum physics were and that was right. a, that was an aspect of like uh science that I just I kind of did not imagine and was very pleasantly surprised by and um and just, just but don't you don't you feel that the internet? I mean that that you began by saying that you know Twitter becomes this way of sharing ideas. So do you feel that the social that that social media or becomes a way of creating new kinds of community? Um, I think it's definitely true. And if it wasn't, we wouldn't be talking. Um, right. <laughs> um, I think. I think what I'm mostly lamenting about is the physical, like very physical aspect of having a letter in your hand. And, and, right. uh, I, I, 
<laughs> it's not like I've written many letters, but I feel like if somebody would send me a letter instead of writing me an email, that would make me extremely happy. Um, send me, send me, send me your address. I will write you a letter. <laughs> this is, this is, this is happening. This is definitely happening. This is, this is happening because I, I, I do write letters. I don't anymore, but I used to write many, many letters. And, um, but my, my favorite example of, um, this, what you're talking about, because who, who would be, um, who would be, who would be a preservation of say a romance like Salon and Bachman 20, 30 years from now, looking back or 50 years from now, um, would it be screenshots of text messages? Um, I really wonder. Um, but, um, speaking of scientists, so Darwin, of course, now that all his letters have been, um, digitized, um, I think Oxford, right? That it's, yeah. it's fascinating, right? People have shown, lots of people have, um, looked at the, the, the doodles that his kids have done on the origins of evolution manuscript. And so it's really cute. Um, but my favorite example is actually he, he wrote, um, millions of letters, hundreds of letters with his best friend who was the, um, president of the Royal Botanical Society, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, Joseph Hooker. And what was really important for him and kind of like what you were talking about is that, Darwin was really kind of his lone wolf, right? He didn't really belong in, he wasn't at university and he wasn't um, a government official and didn't have a royal appointment. And so he was kind of working on his own. But the way he kept touch with the scientific community was through his friend, who was, you know, very much in the thick of things because he was head of the Royal Botanical Society. And, and so we have all their letters. And one thing that really struck me years ago when I was sort of going through these letters was Darwin, um, his eldest son's uh, wife, so his daughter-in-law died in childbirth and they already had several young children and they were all very close family. And so he was devastated not only for himself, his daughter, beloved daughter-in-law, but also he was just incredibly devastated for his son and his grandchildren. And he wrote, this letter basically hours after she died um, to his friend, to Joseph Hooker. And the the handwriting is scrawled. It's a mess. And there are tracks of tears on the letter, you know. Um, and so the, the, the page is completely, you know, littered with tears. The language is not um, – if you type that letter, it would be, you know, I'm, you know, telling him what happened and how sorry he was and, and – um, and then a month or two later, he writes another letter, probably in response, saying, "And saying we're doing better. This is what this is. Who's taking care of the grandchildren? This kind of stuff." And but the handwriting is now once again regular, right? Uh, I see. You know, lovely script, and no tracks of tears, not a crumpled piece of paper. And it just really shook me. It really. I I'm 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 kind yes. of I kind of was holding my chair for a moment over there when you yes. talked about uh, yeah, yeah. the physical manifestation of his grief. It's, right, 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 right. Because it's it's um I'll have to send it to you, but it's this you know, the scrawl, you know, and uh, you know, sideways almost the the light the, the script almost falling off the page. And that that intensity of his grief is 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 the material remnant you know that you're seeing um but we don't have that anymore right except for emoji um (laughs) i know so you know so it's but this is why we have emoji to be honest right because we feel we can't 
affect is not captured. And so we have to have emoji to capture affect. Um, but that's, that's what we're not having anymore with letters. Um, and that makes me a little sad. That makes me a little sad. Uh, so you're getting my uh, address in your inbox. Yes, yes, very yes. Soon, very soon. Um, <laughs> yes. yes. We're going to solve it for ourselves. Yes, first. <laughs> yes, 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 absolutely. So it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I, I feel yes, like I, I could I could keep doing this forever. I know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you have this idea for this podcast. It's wonderful. Um, and um, you'll probably want to edit down some of this, but um, <laughs> but the, um, it's, it's great. I think that people should talk about poems. I, I feel exactly the same way. Um, and I, I think, so, um, I guess, um, I, I, I was, I was probably, um, I was probably so drawn to, to you, um, your Twitter persona, um, so much and, and talking to you right now, you're the real person that you are. Um, I, I think, um, because of words, because of poetry and something about the things that you pick up in the vast randomness of things around us, you know, you, <laughs> you creating meaning for yourself and like me getting some of it, I feel a certain sense of gratefulness that um, it's awkward to express to a person that you haven't really met, but I do feel that way. And um, uh, it's only possible because of poetry. And to me, oh, I that's, mean, that's, that's wonderful. That's such a lovely way to put it. That's a, such a lovely way to put it. And um, and thank you. And um, I likewise um, thank you for the poem you wrote and that you sent me. And, oh wow, um, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> you can edit that out if you want. But um, but also, um, I, actually, I should ask you. I mean, is it strange? So, is the persona that you perceived is it good or bad to talk in person? I mean, to talk. You know, is it? This is this is absolutely wonderful. As much as I, I think it is great to uh, know people um, as a starting point mm-hmm. um, somewhere else. You know, it's so good to right. to actually have this conversation with you, and and somehow, uh, even though there is an assumed intimacy on my part, um, I feel like right. um, I feel like we are using that as a as a kind of starting capital to to get get to actually know each other, and I, I think that's right. great. Um, and now we will start a correspondence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, On and, paper. <laughs> yes. And, and 50 years from now, everybody <laughs> right. will hear about our whirlwind romance. So, yes, you yes, know, let's, yes, absolutely. let's, uh, let's make those words count. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> thank Thank you so much, Cole Plums. Thank you. And, yeah. um, uh, I, I hope we talk again. This is, this is yes. wonderful. This was, and thank you so much, Nihan. And thank you, Brian. <laughs> Brian, Brian says hello. He's he's waving his hand. <laughs> okay, great. So thank you, and and have a lovely evening. And go out and recite some poems on the stoop. Oh yeah, I'm totally walking uh, walking back, and and you know, uh, reading uh-huh. Louis Ziglac. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good. Bye. Have a lovely evening. Bye. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. Let us know what you thought of this episode on Twitter. We are Who Reads Poetry. If you have recommendations on who we should have next on the podcast, or better still, you want to be on the podcast, please tweet at us. Again, our handle is Who Reads Poetry. This podcast would not be possible without Brian Kelly, who very graciously gave it music. Thanks, Brian. 
You can find Brian at Spilth on Twitter. That is S-P-I-L-T-H. Ask Brian for the story behind the handle. You can find links to the poems and people we talked about in the show notes. We will love to hear from you. Until next time, bye-bye.